Cultural Literacy, Part 2 of 3, The Ethiopian Eunuch. I'll continue in our exercise on cultural literacy with a text in Acts chapter 8 on the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts is a great passage for a topic like cultural exegesis. The book of Acts is all about the acts of the apostles and the Holy Spirit working through them to establish and build up the first century church. But it's important to note, up until this point in history, Christianity and Judaism is almost exclusively concentrated within the Jewish population. In other words, another way of thinking about this is, as far as Christianity was concerned, ethnicity or culture was a near perfect predictor of religious tradition. If you're not Jewish, you're probably not Christian, with very few exceptions. And if you are a Christian, you probably are Jewish. Why wouldn't the Book of Acts be a great place for an exercise on cultural literacy? The writing is all over the walls. God was setting the stage, I think, for centuries. I think that's one of the reasons why the Gentile conversions in the Book of Acts were of paramount importance to New Testament Christianity. God was orchestrating this from the very beginning. We can start with context in Acts chapter 2. Um, 3,000 Jews from all over the world are gathered together in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Now, while these Jews are there, the Holy Spirit comes on Peter and the other apostles, um, just as Jesus said. And shortly thereafter, Peter preaches a powerful sermon. A crowd of 3,000 Jews gets baptized. But don't celebrate yet. Shortly thereafter, uh, persecution comes and Christians fled Jerusalem uh, in pursuit of safety. We pick up in Acts chapter 8 verses 26 through 40, where a man, Philip, interacts with an Ethiopian eunuch. We know from the text this eunuch had intentions of worshiping in Jerusalem, and presumably he was going back to Ethiopia. Let's focus on three things for the time being in our cultural exegesis, um, perhaps in order of importance. Observation number one, this man was a eunuch. Observation number two, this man was a Gentile. In observation number three, this man was Ethiopian. Um, I'll start with observation number one. This man was a eunuch. This isn't a term we use much today, although I'll try and draw some comparisons in just a second. The short of it is, eunuchs were responsible for guarding the women's quarters in the palace to ensure their integrity and make sure their sexual drive doesn't compromise their mission, many, although not all, but many of these men were castrated to make sure they weren't tempted by the prospect of sleeping with the women they were supposed to be protecting or impregnating them to usurp the political establishment. Yes, you heard that correctly. Although it's hard to know for sure, there's a chance this man had no testicles or they were damaged beyond repair. I should mention that a number of scholars who are, excuse me, there are a number of scholars who are of the school of thought that this eunuch probably was castrated, but some scholars have a different take on it. But for the sake of our exercise, let's just say that as part of his job, he's been castrated, like 
many, many, many other eunuchs during this time period. This is where things get interesting. We don't have an exact equivalent today, but we could perhaps approximate castration with different comparisons. If I don't have any male genitalia, you could perhaps say that I'm a bit less of a man. So this would be a man who's presumably seen as less masculine, at least compared to his non-unit counterparts, right? I would argue that perception would be true for both men and women. That is, when men and women, inside or outside of the church, look at this eunuch, there's a strong temptation to perhaps think of him as less of a man. I mean, if male sex organs are what make, a man, at least in part, what make a man a man, many would say you're not a man or not a particularly useful man if you do not have male parts, right? Now, beyond being perceived as less masculine, what are we like in a man's who when he doesn't measure up to society's standards of what it means to be a man? In some cases, we may liken him to a homosexual man. And I'll admit, norms for masculinity have changed over the centuries, but my intuition says even in the first century, both men and women expect men to have male sex organs. And to not have male sex organs might mean that you're not really a man and or they don't, you know, you don't actually like women. So it's quite possible that not only was this eunuch's uh, masculinity called into question, but perhaps his sexuality, right? His sexual orientation was called into question as well. Again, I would argue that would be a potential pitfall both inside and outside of the church. I mean, if I did a survey of people in the first century, I'm pretty sure results would show that it would be a really big deal for a man to not have testicles even if he has a fancy pants job working for a queen. Keep in mind, just because we're in the church, it doesn't mean we're immune to the sin of being judgmental or being prejudiced or self-righteous or any number of other things that could play out in a situation like this. In fact, there are situations where we're probably more prejudiced or judgmental than people who don't even believe in religion. But that's a whole different conversation, right? Let me stay on topic. Um, obviously, we're not above the possibility of showing prejudice. The church as an institution subscribes to traditional gender roles. So what do you think happens when a man walks through the door wearing women's jeans, right? Or we find out he walks around with a pocket mirror or gets mani-pedis with his female friends, right? Or we find out he has a history of sleeping with other men. Or he's the only guy in the family group or, or you know, the Bible talk group or whatever who doesn't show a strong interest in starting a family or having kids. I mean, this eunuch couldn't really do that if he wanted to, right? What do you think happens when a eunuch of sorts walks through your church doors? Or maybe even someone who was previously a eunuch, right? Because keep in mind, being a eunuch, that's a job. That's a position. You can quit the job. What do you think happens when somebody who used to be a eunuch 
but isn't a eunuch anymore, somebody who used to be a eunuch walks through your church doors. I'm not really convinced that sisters in the church are lining up out of the door to go on a date with that handsome, young eunuch. Beyond that, I don't know how the guys will feel about him either, particularly if they're uh, hyper-masculine and have some reservations about spending time with men they perceive as sexually ambiguous. I want to stress this. Being a eunuch has nothing to do with sexuality, at least sexual orientation. That should be more specific. So it has nothing to do with sexual orientation. Eunuchs are simply people who hold positions that frequently involve being castrated. Um, I chose these examples because they draw a strong parallel between Acts 8 and a more modern topic that we all have some level of familiarity with. Um, although, to be clear, this isn't a perfect comparison. But there's another reason why I like these examples, too. The church, historically, has not had a positive relationship with the LGBT community. Now, there are lots of reasons for that, but suffice to say, the relationship is incredibly strained. And it's a community of people that the church now has great, great difficulty reaching. This is not unlike the case of our eunuch, right? I mean, it's right there in Leviticus chapter 21, verses 18 through 20. No, I'm not, and I'm quoting, no one with crushed testicles may offer sacrifice to God, right? Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, makes a similar point. If your testicles are crushed or cut off, you're not permitted to enter the assembly of God. I think the implication is simple. The church has a documented history of excluding people like this eunuch. I mean, at this point in history, approximately 1,500 years or so of excluding people like this eunuch. Absolutely no eunuchs allowed for 15 centuries. This is, excuse me, this isn't unlike our comparison to the LGBT community at all. Suffice to say, there's probably a bit of tension present between this man and the Jewish or, or Christian community during this time period. So that's observation number one, right? Observation two, this man was a Gentile. This is an important point because it would ultimately come to be the story of the book of Acts. Acts 10 is a really good reference for this, right? The Gentiles are not unclean. It's okay to worship and fellowship with them. I mean, sure, that's easy for us to say now, but in the first century, it was still a very radical idea. The reason why, excuse me, the reason why the scripture on the Ethiopian eunuch is such a great reference in our exercise of cultural exegesis is because he represents one of the first Gentile converts in the first century church. It was a truly historic moment. Can you imagine what it was like to embody an identity that up until a few days ago, an entire church community was under the impression that you were not fit to fellowship with. I mean, my impression is he probably felt like he was walking on eggshells. 
In fact, maybe he was thinking, you know, the Apostle Peter says I'm allowed to be here, but that doesn't mean my Jewish brothers and sisters actually want me to be here, right? I mean, it only takes a few miscommunications. Maybe they go out to breakfast one day after church uh, and they don't send them a text about it, right? I'm being a little bit facetious. Or maybe they organize a trip to the movies and he finds out about it on Facebook, right? Or maybe they do a road trip to a nearby city and cancel house church that day. And he shows up because he had no idea everyone was out of town. I mean, seriously, it only takes a few less than stellar experiences before he starts to think, I'm not wanted here, or there's something going on, or there's something wrong. Now for context, this man was presumably going back to Ethiopia. So my hypotheticals above aren't particularly likely. I mean, when the, when the church got started in Ethiopia, you would likely have a lot more Ethiopians, um, excuse me, it would likely have a lot more Ethiopians and these people would be Gentiles too, just like him. Still, I think this is an important observation. This is a man who embodies an identity that has historically been both excluded and marginalized in the church. How you treat a man like this in your fellowship is actually very important. Again, we're doing cultural exegesis. We can't just read the passage. We need to make sure we read and understand the situation. Observation number three. This man was a eunuch. So this is not eunuch. What am I talking about? Observ <laughs> observation number three. This man was Ethiopian. He was a eunuch, but that's not observation three. Observation three is this man was an Ethiopian. So this is interesting. This man is a chocolate brother. Literally. I mean, some commentaries note that the term Ethiopian was used as a generic umbrella term for anyone who looked like they were African, right? So anybody slender and dark who had that type of body type. Um, it's quite possible this man was truly Ethiopian, but at a minimum, he was probably from somewhere in Africa and he probably looked the part too. That's why they call him or reference him as the Ethiopian eunuch. Why is this relevant? Well, remember, Christianity is hyper-concentrated within the Jewish community at this point in history. And the first century church consists of two groups of Jews, Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. Hellenistic Jews were, Jew, uh, were Jewish, excuse me, Hellenistic Jews were Jews, but they grew up outside of Judah. Thus, they had more exposure to Greek influence and probably spoke Aramaic with a bit of an accent. Now, Hebraic Jews grew up in Judah, and they were probably a bit more in touch with their Jewish roots. Uh, thus, even though they probably knew Greek, their preference was probably to speak Aramaic, and they probably had a stronger affinity for Jewish culture versus Greek culture, right? Our dark-skinned Ethiopian eunuch is neither. That is, he isn't a Hellenistic Jew, and he isn't a Hebraic Jew. In fact, by virtue of his title, there's reason to believe that just by looking at him, it was quite obvious that he was from a foreign land. Beyond that, though, let's keep in mind this is a man of stature. He works in the palace of the queen, the Ethiopian queen. 
That's the equivalent of working in the White House. It's actually a very big deal. Suffice to say, he needed to know Greek to occupy such a high status position. But since he's Ethiopian, he spoke Greek with an Ethiopian accent, presumably. And looking at the list of countries these Jews were from, you can see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 7 through 11, it doesn't look like any of them have direct ties to Ethiopia. So in addition to being a Gentile versus being Jewish, this guy looks funny because he's from a foreign land, and he talks funny because he's from a foreign land. So what do we do now? Is this the guy we want on our praise and worship team? Are people going to understand him because he has such an unusual or strange or funny accent? Is this the guy we want serving as an usher? If we put him at the door, is it going to run people away? What if they've never seen an Ethiopian before, right? Should we use his apartment for house church? I mean, I don't want any visitors to think we're an Ethiopian church. Oh, God, no. P uh, Peter said we have to open our doors to Gentiles, but let's not get carried away, right? I mean, you can imagine what the thought process may have been like for the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews during this time period. We could probably add two or three other observations, but here's my point. In performing our cultural exegesis and reading the situation, uh, we can see certain things highlighted or certain things that stick out. If you're a Hellenistic or Hebraic Christian, uh, when this eunuch gets baptized, and he does get baptized according to Acts 8 verse 38, once he gets baptized, your thought process may go a little something like this. We are Jewish. He is Ethiopian. We have excluded him for 1,500 years. He has been excluded for 1,500 years. We are God's chosen people and a royal priesthood. He is a Gentile and he's on the outside looking in. And he just became a part of our family. And so you can imagine as a conclusion, they may say, wow. If we're not intentional, uh, excuse me, if we're not intentional about building a bridge, Satan may convince this guy he isn't welcome. And this whole discipleship thing was a bad idea. I'm going to go out of my way to make sure he feels welcome every step of the way. Now, I want to be very clear about this. A lot of what we just discussed was speculative. But that doesn't mean it isn't relevant. That doesn't mean it isn't applicable. Just because we don't know something for sure doesn't dismiss its importance. Just like our exercise in part one, it's important not only to read the text, but to read the situation too. This is a situation in which I think a man has the potential to be uh, marginalized or to feel marginalized or both, right? It's perhaps for that reason that we see Paul continuing to emphasize Jew-Gentile relations throughout the entire, almost the entirety of the New Testament. This is the real deal, people. Um, you know, I think that's all we have for today. I'll share part three, I don't know, I guess next week. Um, just some random thoughts, right? 